Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello. Welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I am Chris DeMuth, a PM at Rangeley. With me, as always, is my co-host and colleague, fellow Rangeley PM, Andrew Walker. Today, we're talking Amazon and then turning to Whole Foods. I was a little bit tempted by United, but then everybody started talking <laughs> about it, and we might slip a little in at the end, but I resolutely intended to not make that the whole or prime topic. So, Andrew, um, the reason why I wanted to start with Amazon is uh, I am a huge admirer of their CEO who just put out what I thought was a very interesting uh, annual letter to his investors, uh, which we uh, took a look at. And so just wanted to get your thoughts on that. And then, um, well, I guess I could go into a little bit what caught my eye, but uh, he kind of described, uh, he, he, he posted his uh 1997 letter, which always makes me cringe because I read it in 1997 and didn't do a darn thing about it, uh, and uh, then kind of goes into his description of Amazon as a day one company and uh, kind of trying to stay uh, nimble and high velocity as is easy to do in startups, hard to do in large organizations such as Amazon, and then kind of goes through his checklist on how he does that. Yeah, so look, I thought it was a great letter. I The, the most interesting thing to me about it was... Uh, what was not in it, and what was not in it was any discussion of Amazon's financials, any right. discussion of performance, any discussion of uh, projections for the year. I mean, I, I don't think there was a single number in the entire thing, and that it's so starkly different from what every other shareholder letter does. You know, most shareholder letters start, if it was a good year, they'll say, hey, we increased profits by 50%, our stock was up 30%. Uh, now, Amazon stock, I don't think, did super well in 2016, but you know, on any long, longer-term time horizon, the stock has been an absolute monster, and that is not what he is focused on. He's focused on – it was almost a letter to employees that got leaked to investors. He was mm-hmm. focused on, hey, here's how we can – here's how we stay a day one company, which is a company that's always innovating, always thriving. Our focus is always on doing the best for customers. It never said anything about delivering shareholder value. So I I thought that was the most interesting part part to me. I think uh, that, uh, you know, uh, he has an interesting relationship with his shareholders. He clearly hasn't been uh, kind of focusing on, uh, he clearly is kind of the ultimate and long-term greedy, not short-term greedy, doesn't uh, focus on short-term profitability. You know, he's an an amazing character. He's currently uh, number three richest guy in the world. But it's amazing once you get to kind of, you know, over $70 billion of net worth, how it fluctuates week to week. You know, you're down a little bit and it's half a billion dollar down down day. uh, uh, Kind of, uh, his, his daily fluctuations or a substantial amount of money. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think that it really did seem like he was focusing on decision-making and lessons to his team. I thought a lot of them were really applicable. You know, he is he is a card player. And my first thought was that he has good evolutionary strategies. It's good game theory, whether you're talking, you know, kind of bridge or poker or investing. Um on how I mean, just to tick off a couple of them, um, and I th- I think I think they were all really good. Um, never use a one size fits all decision making process, um, and really emphasized how a lot of decisions are reversible two way doors. And I I love that. I've I, I've thought about this in a little bit different way, but I always think that once you make good easy decisions and say no to all the no pile and yes to and everything in the yes pile, that all the close calls should be maximizing 
reversibility mm-hmm. and uh and and that this was kind of what he kicked off his his list with um saying that uh, make decisions where you're around 70 percent in terms of the information you wish you had that if you go from 70 to 90 you often will be too slow i think that can uh that that, that can have application in investing yeah and these two i thought it was interesting because amazon look they're they're probably the biggest it, probably Apple and then Amazon are the two biggest successes of our lifetime. Yes. And Amazon actually might be bigger than Apple in terms of, hey, it's tough to say that, but they're both two, the two biggest successes of our lifetime. And when you think about Amazon and you think of all the flops they had, you know, they had the Fire Phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just kind of Googling around uh, and prep for this podcast. Uh, in 2015, they had this highly touted Amazon Destinations launch that mm-hmm. they put a lot of marketing behind. It launched April 2015, and they shut it down in October 2015. Uh, when Groupon was hot, they put a lot of money to building out Amazon Local. You know, the the company it has not been perfect. It's had huge flops, mainly the Amazon phone, which was like a almost 200 million dollar write up. But they've had huge flops. But their flops have been. They've made bets. They've made these tiny bets, excluding, I mean, Amazon Phone was 170 million, but they've made tiny bets where if they paid off, the payoff was going to be massive. Mm-hmm. Like, look, they invested 170 million in the phone. If it's a success and it rivals the iPhone, you know, the iPhone is a $300 billion franchise. So they were betting kind of a penny to make a dollar, a hundred X return or something. Uh, so, you know, you look at them and it's been incredible. And they're focused on the consumers, you know, like, uh, the Alexa Dot, my parents got one for Christmas, and my, my dad was really worried about uh, people kind of wiretapping him and listening through, so they gave it to me, where I have no such concerns. And I saw it, and I was like, what am I going to do with this? And it's so funny. You sit in bed, and you just go, hey, Alexa, turn on uh, turn on an alarm at 6.30, or hey, Alexa, play music. It's so easy, and it becomes part of your life so quickly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think one of the things he was getting at was that he was willing to make mistakes, have bad outcomes embarrass himself and a lot of the difference i think between 70 percent informed and 90 percent informed is kind of cya and that he that that more kind of calcified organizations are going to just always wait until they're almost full of information and go a lot slower and that he is willing to make decisions uh that were more dynamic and quicker you know it's something you see a lot of time in uh kind of when you talk to research analysts which i think research analysts kind of get a bad rep because a lot of them are very smart but one of the things you hear a lot of times oh we we can't recommend that stock right now there's too much uncertainty or we kind of want to wait out the uncertainty and the, the issue is what they mean is the the picture's cloudy or there's a lot of negative sentiment around it and they don't want to stick their neck out and it's something that you can get when you're uh, widely publicized, but you do, when you your uh, reputation is more based around how people perceive your ideas, not actual performance, or uh, it's what a lot of times you get with a mutual fund manager who just talks platitudes but doesn't have to really dive deeply on specific names. Wait for a hundred percent clarity, and then we'll get involved. Versus fifty percent clarity when maybe there's a lot of excess return to be had. I, I agree, a hundred percent. Very, very good points. So the last uh, two I was going to mention that he said uh, the phrase "disagree and commit." I've never used it or thought about it in exactly that way, but I thought it was really good. Yeah, that he agreed. said to save a lot of time. This is look just as a data point. I'm going to let you know. I think the opposite. That's not what I believe. However, this is the right decision to make. It's the right time to make the decision. Take into account, please take into account what I'm saying, but I'm not trying to trump 
uh, play a trump card. I'm not trying to end the conversation. I'm trying to keep the process going, and uh, and that that works symmetrically, uh, up and down and sideways in an organization. And, and that fits really well with disagree and commit. It fits really well with uh, reversible decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hey, this decision it's not going to bankrupt if, if we do it. It's reversible. I disagree. I don't think it's a great one, but go do something. It's better to kind of uh, be slanted towards an action bias than an inaction bias mm-hmm. with these reversible decisions. And that kind of made me also think like. I, Jeff Bezos, he's gotten a reputation as a very hard person to work for. You know, him and Elon Musk, who I think are kind of the two visionaries of our generation, both have that reputation. Mm-hmm. But hearing him say something like this, and even set a recent example that he had done where he didn't think a project should get the go-ahead, his team thought otherwise, and he said, okay, I disagree, but you guys go for it. It, uh, it, it makes humble. Him, yeah, it's humble, but it also makes him sound like the type of person you'd want to work for, right? He's, I, he gives you the rope to hang yourself with. I, I love it, and I love the idea that because an opinion is mind doesn't make it special like if it's right that's good if it's valuable and useful and probabilistically sound that's good but uh, that, that it lets you uh, hold ideas lightly. Um, and, and he mentioned his managers, you know, they had more domain expertise there, so he deferred to them, which, again, I think that's the sign of a great manager. Absolutely, I agree. The uh, last one he mentioned was recognizing true misalignment. This is the one that I thought was most cautionary of escalating alignment uh, problems immediately, and that that's one that uh, people... If they're misaligned, if there's some real incentive problem, they're not trying to understand, they're not trying to fix it. And that's something where he would probably, that was one where I thought the undertones were maybe a uh, bad Jeff Bezos as opposed to good Jeff Bezos in terms of uh, wouldn't be as fun working for him in this case. But I didn't know if you had any thoughts to add to that. Nothing really there. Did you hear the story about the girl who said, Alexa, order me 100 uh, boxes of cookies and it ordered 100 boxes of cookies for her? (laughs) Okay, so she said, Alexa, order 100 boxes of cookies. Alexa did it and she got 100 boxes of cookies. And then a newscaster came on and he said... And she said, Alexa, order me a hundred boxes of cookies. And everyone who had their Alexa close by their TV, uh, it ordered them a hundred boxes of cookies. It was like a hundred people throughout the uh, San Francisco. So I'm really hoping someone is listening to this podcast on speaker and you just got a hundred boxes of cookies order. You can ship Chris and I some cookies. We will happily take them. You're welcome. Absolutely. Uh, I I have never been good at conversational transitions. I have a new thought in my mind. I just kind of blurted out. Uh, But today on this podcast, uh, prepare yourself for a smooth, suave transition from Amazon to Whole Foods. Apparently, Amazon looked at making an offer for Whole Foods last fall. Uh, Amazon's interested in getting bigger in grocery, both in the U.S. and the U.K. uh, as well. Um, It does uh, well overall with customers, as we've talked about, but does really well with affluent customers. Um, The stats, I've been interested looking at prime and upper income Americans, not necessarily the rich, especially if you live in Manhattan or somewhere, but kind of upper income Americans, uh, 70% are prime subscribers already, which is spectacular um probably a lot of overlap with whole foods um and since then and why we are bringing up today uh, jana's uh, filed a 13d uh and uh, so uh, whole foods definitely has an activist and might have a suitor or two yeah so look let's start with the amazon for whole foods sure i I think the odds of them actually buying Whole Foods are incredibly low. You know, Amazon's been tossed around as the acquirer for a bunch of different companies I've seen recently. And it's because, you know, as they get bigger, everybody loves to speculate. Will Amazon buy X or Y? Will Apple buy Tesla? And the odds are extremely low. Amazon's never made an acquisition 
over $2 billion. Whole Foods would be a $10 billion plus acquisition. Uh, Amazon has, despite everyone for years saying Amazon should buy Best Buy, Amazon should buy Sears, Amazon should buy Macy's, Amazon has never made a retail acquisition. Uh, to date, they've they've kind of dipped their toes into retail with small company-owned stores where they can do a lot of experimenting. And I think that's exactly the right thing. So I think the odds of an Amazon Whole Foods deal, look, as a manager, you have to investigate it. It would be a massive deal if you think you can do a lot, you have to investigate it. But I don't think that's happening. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that or if you want to turn to Jana's 13D and Whole Foods. I, I think it probably won't. Oh, right, it was the other one that I kind of uh, thought that... Uh, um, excuse me, I, I just misspoke. Um, uh, Radio Shack was the other Radio, one that, yeah, yeah. Uh, that I thought they could uh, uh, have done. Um, so uh, that came in when I think it probably won't happen, but it could have been one of the things on the mind of Jana. Um, Jana's uh, 13D was a little unusual. It's not their normal pattern. They filed this preemptively. Uh, without having met with management. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they kind of blurted this out. Um, I don't think that Whole Foods management or board is kind of... Uh, um, uh, they, they, they don't have this kind of critical flaw that uh, that an activist would normally wait for. Uh, it's not 100% obvious that they would be unsympathetic to some of the points that were made. Uh, but they came on strong. I would throw out that the board and the advisors uh, were highly regarded are highly regarded and that the target is not well defended so this is going to be an onslaught that whole foods is going to have to pay a lot of attention to yeah and look i think it's an interesting whole foods i think it's always interesting where they're still led by their co-founder their ceo the guy who's really built them today it's always interesting to see activism kind of versus a founder Mm -hmm. uh i think it's going to be a tough slog you know when i think about the history of whole foods for years, they had kind of the organic market to themselves, and they were buying up the organic. You went to Whole Foods because that's where you went to buy organic. But now, if you want organic, you can go to Walmart. You know, mm-hmm. it's more about brands have organic brands. You think organic milk, you can think Horizon or Stonyfield or something. Uh, and a lot of Jana's brand, a lot of Jana's point is, hey, you need to uh, improve your distribution. You need to get further along with your retail. You need to cut SGNA. It's changing Whole Foods from what's made its Whole Foods. And I wonder if what they're doing, it makes it more into a grocer. And grocery is a very low margin, low return business. There could be upside if they did it. But it's going to be very interesting because they're talking about changing Whole Foods into a completely different company in a lot of respects. And you can imagine why this is not something that would enthuse a founder. You know, this is not what he was in it for. Um, I think that one of the ways that Whole Foods was able to grow is that when the various organic brands, they had a kind of monopoly on that distribution, you know, uh, people that had these kind of post-industrial concerns, uh, you could call it, um, uh, local, uh, non-GMO, organic, free range, uh, they didn't really know. I mean, they probably assumed these things were expensive, but they didn't really know how to price it out. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a gallon of milk, you have a dozen eggs, and most shoppers, uh, at least one uh, kind of member of a family would know very precisely what to expect to pay for those things. Uh, but you don't really know these advantages. You know, I always think that when anybody tells you you can't put a price on X, be really skeptical. Um, uh, if you see something that you like and it says price upon request, it's never a low price when you ask for it. You know, these are, these are these are times where you can get huge margins for a while at least. But as time went on, it became there became a lot of really good price discovery, and you have Trader Joe's, you have alternatives, and 
and you have price competition and price clarity, and now uh, people know what to pay for these things, you can get them without the kind of overall Whole Foods experience. And And people are willing to... Forgo that experience. And it's not just price discovery, right? Like, if you want chicken without antibiotics, like we, I think yesterday, KFC came out and said, hey, we're not going to put, we're not going to buy chicken with antibiotics. You know, 10, 15 years ago, it would have been very difficult to find that. And you could have gone to Whole Foods. And when you've only got a couple people making it, the prices are going to be higher because there's not a lot of supply. But as kind of everyone trends that way, a lot more supply comes down. It drives the prices and the margins down for all of it. More supply, lower cost, lower margins. And that's really impacted Whole Foods. And I think it's interesting, you know, you you mentioned it. You go to Whole Foods, you expect to pay a little bit more probably, Mm -hmm. but you expect a much better level of service. There's a lot more kind of custom food. A lot of Whole Foods as you go when you can get the prepackaged stuff. They've got the great butcher. They've got the great foods custom order. A lot of Janus Plant seems to be cutting out SG&A and making them more like a grocer. But if you do that, what differentiates them from Publix? And a lot of their margin is in these custom things like how you can't cut SGNA and still have all of these custom things. So it'll be very interesting to see. To be continued. Um, I, I, I'm a Whole Foods shopper. I love it. And I would say that uh, Whole Foods is kind of my political nirvana because it's all the liberalism without the fascism. You know, you can have these highly elite aesthetics, but you just pay for it yourself, mm-hmm. which I think is perfect. So, you know, you want organic, you want free range, fine, but you just uh, cut a check and it costs quite a lot. You know, part of Whole Foods thing, and we'll, we'll end real quickly, part of Whole Foods thing has always been, I think it's one or 10% of profits or something. I can't remember exactly what it is gets donated to charity and mm-hmm. that's made them I, I believe their term is conscious capitalist mm-hmm. do you think an acquirer or part of the push will be hey stop donating money to charity because it is interesting that is something that would fall straight through to the bottom line but it also adds to the brand so it'll be interesting to see you know what you decide there kind of could also determine which way you try to push whole foods yeah no i think you could certainly do it more at the product level giving more choice to the customers mm-hmm. Um, with that, all the time we have for today, before we hit our disclosure or reminder, if you like the podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. Uh, no disclosure for me, Andrew. Nothing for me. Talk to you guys next week. Bye.